presented by the American Petroleum Institute. Hey, good morning. I'm Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton. It's Friday, August 25th, and here's what's driving the day. Last night, former President Donald Trump surrendered to Georgia authorities at Fulton County Jail to be booked on racketeering and other criminal charges related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Unlike the other three times he's been booked this year on criminal charges, a mugshot was taken, which you can expect to see repeatedly in the days and weeks ahead, wielded for political purposes both by Trump's critics, who will point to it as further evidence of his unsuitability for high office, and by his supporters. Trump's own campaign already used fake mugshots from prior bookings in fundraising appeals and campaign merchandise, and you can expect to see the actual mugshot on Trump t-shirts someday very soon. Meanwhile, on the campaign trail, initial assessments of the fallout from the first Republican debate suggest a couple things. First, that there was a genuine interest in the debate. Fox News announced yesterday that across its platforms, it notched around 12.8 million viewers, which is more than many initial estimates thought was likely. And you could look at that number and say, you know, oh, that that is less than, say, the first primetime January 6th committee hearing, which got around 20 million viewers. But unlike that, the debate was only carried live on one channel, uh, Fox News, uh, which is a cable channel, not a mainstream network like the Jan 6 hearings, and it deprived it as a result of that same sort of level of ubiquity. 12.8 million viewers is a very strong number for, for any show, really, nowadays, but certainly any cable show. The question, in some respects, is why? You know, why did 12.8 million people tune in? Now, you could look at that and say that there was curiosity about non-Trump Republicans, and perhaps there's a real market out there, you know, in, in suburbs and in other places, for what these Republican candidates who aren't necessarily Trumpy are offering. That's one way to see it. Another way to see it, though, is that it could just be that there's a genuine interest in anything Trump-related, even if he himself is not taking part. For more on that debate, and for how it did or did not affect the contours of the race, I'm joined by Jonathan Martin, Politico's senior political columnist and politics bureau chief, who is on the roads of the Commonwealth of Virginia as we speak. Good morning, J. Mart. Nobody on the roads of the Commonwealth is safe right now as I'm thinking about the race. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure, our pleasure. So here at the end of the week, you know, post-debate, post-Trump's booking in Fulton County, has anything really changed in terms of the dynamics of this race? No. In fact, the dynamics were solidified by this debate. uh, And those dynamics uh, cheaply include uh, no unified opposition to the front runner. Look, as long as there are Republican alternatives to Donald Trump, are, are still uh, splitting the vote and no obvious alternative has emerged, then Trump is going to benefit from that fractured field. It's not complicated. It, it's not rocket science. I was a history major. I can do this math. And uh, uh, look, there's time yet. There's going to be a debate a month basically going forward here. But for the moment, Trump is, 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 living, is living large because this field is fractured. So let's talk about that fracture. You know, one of the things that seems noteworthy to me about the field is that there are any number of different types of reasons that someone would run. You know, there are people who are, you know, as you note in the piece, 
accomplished governors have sort of a, a long resume. There are others who don't come to this with that sort of background. If you are a Republican candidate uh, looking at this field, given not that this race is a sort of a fait accompli situation, but given Trump's dominance of it, why get in the race? Like what what is in it for you at this point? Ambition is a powerful drug in politics, if you had noticed, Zach. And uh, I think uh, <laughs> that combined with this thought that just maybe, just maybe the party's going to wake up one day and realize maybe that's not wise uh, for us to nominate him. And maybe we should find somebody else. And I think they can all find a way to convince themselves that I'm the somebody else, Right. One of the folks that seems to have this sort of, you know, squinting and seeing themselves in the Oval Office uh, type vibe, I guess, is Glenn Youngkin, the, the governor of Virginia. Yeah. Uh, and there there continues to, even at this relatively, it's not too late yeah. to jump in, but maybe it is, you know, uh, at this semi-late stage, there continues to be this intrigue yeah. around his possible candidacy. What What is going on there, and, and what does his sort of flirtation with entering this race tell us about, I guess, the sort of dyspepsia among Republicans? Well, speaking of Washington and Jefferson, uh, Virginia uh, used to be known as the mother of presidents, but the Commonwealth has been barren for uh, over a century. In fact, uh, if you want to claim Woodrow Wilson, it's a bit of a stretch, but uh, Wilson was the last Virginia-born uh, president. So it's been a while. So look, for Youngkin, uh, he's not ruling out running for president. And I think the theory of the case, Zach, is the legislative midterms in Virginia are this fall. If I can hold the state house and pick up the state Senate and do so on the strength of wins in suburbia and also get the party to participate in early voting. Yes, uh, early voting, uh, words he did not like here uh, from the GOP and the Trump era. Uh, Youngkin's calling it securing the vote, not early voting, of course, uh, about the Trumpian lingo. Uh, but if he can do those two things, win a majority, hold a majority in the state, uh, the state uh, Senate and state House, and do so with early votes, then I think he's got a couple of uh, chits to hold up and can say, the field's not set. There's no obvious Trump challenger. I'm going to get in late here. Look at what I just did with the early vote and with winning a legislative majority in a blue state in the suburbs. All right. So, look, we know the history of candidates to get in late. It's not easy, but he does not want to rule it out yet. I think because he's hearing so many sweet nothings in his ear from donors and, frankly, from the Rupert Murdoch press, which is looking for an alternative. So why rule it out? I just had to get in my mother of president's line, which I really enjoy saying that. Um, <laughs> well, there's a lot to consider there, and it's a really great piece. I hope people read it. Jonathan Martin, thank you so much for joining us. All right. And for your schedule today, the House and Senate are out, and President Biden has no public events scheduled. Just a quick note, we're off next week along with Politico's other podcasts and many of its newsletters. You can expect the Playbook newsletter will continue to land in your inbox every morning. So we will be back with a new episode on Tuesday, September 5th. Happy Labor Day. I'm Zach Stanton. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great weekend. Higher fuel prices affect every American. Washington can help. 
Pump prices are driven by the cost of crude oil that is set by global supply and demand, not oil companies or fuel retailers. We need smart policies to help increase American oil production to add to the global supply and help put downward pressure on prices. America needs more oil leasing, permitting reforms for needed infrastructure construction, and common sense regulation. Learn more at API.org.